Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of death, murder, drug abuse, gore, and stillbirths. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. One night in early 16th century Spain, Francois Arivaios de Sueso rushed home. Days before, he'd left town for business, promising his pregnant wife he'd return soon. Halfway through his trip, a frantic messenger tracked Francois down with bad news. About a week prior, his wife had fallen sick. Her illness worsened faster than anyone expected, and she had died very suddenly. The doctors buried her and the unborn child. Devastated, Francois charged home. He burst into the church in the middle of the night and demanded to see his wife one last time. It was an odd request, but the heartbroken husband was adamant. The clergyman agreed to exhume his wife. As soon as Francois opened the casket, the sounds of a child's cry echoed through the sanctuary. Shocked, Francois lifted a squirming baby boy from the coffin, still very much alive. With no signs of life from the mother, the priests and doctors could only reach one conclusion. Somehow, against all medical reason, a corpse had given birth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a one-part episode on coffin births, a medical phenomenon in which a pregnant woman delivers a baby after her death. We'll examine reports of post-mortem births from the 15th century and explore how a fetus can survive inside a deceased mother. We'll also compare ancient tombs to modern murder cases to uncover the truth about these mysterious deliveries. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? 
Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. When Francois Arevaios de Sueso lifted a living baby boy out of his wife's coffin, he thought it was a miracle. To celebrate his son's birth, he named the child Fils de la Terre, French for Son of the Earth. The boy's name would forever be synonymous with coffin births, but he wasn't the only example of a post-mortem delivery, or even the first. There had been other documented examples, like one from roughly 200 years prior, during a time of gruesome bloodshed in Europe. In 16th century Spain, the Inquisition was a tool for Catholic monarchs to keep control. To stop rebellion before it started, inquisitors traveled around the country and rooted out heresy, including anti-Catholic and anti-royal sentiment. Those accused of betraying the throne were punished severely, with practices that ranged from torture to execution. Nobody was safe, not even pregnant women. In one case in 1551, the Inquisition tried and sentenced a pregnant woman to death by hanging. These deaths were meant to be examples for the public, reminders of what happens to those who choose to defy the powerful institutions that govern their lives. The woman's body remained dangling from the gallows long after her death. About four hours after the execution, passersby noticed something strange. According to a self-proclaimed medical professional from the time, quote, two living children fell from her womb. This was the first written record of what is now called postmortem fetal expulsion. Given there aren't any other accounts of this incident, it's impossible to verify. It could have been falsified or exaggerated to illustrate the brutality of the Spanish Inquisition. But it's probably fair to say that until this moment, humans never imagined a corpse could deliver a child. But in the centuries after, more accounts of the phenomenon started cropping up across Europe. In 1633 Brussels, a pregnant woman fell into convulsions and died. The next day, bereaved loved ones were sitting around her body when they noticed strange movements in her abdomen. The body was covered with a cloth, but two days later, one of the attendants noticed a red spot blossoming on the sheet. When they realized the stain was blood, the group uncovered the corpse. Between the woman's legs, a baby hung from its mother's body, half delivered. Based on the account, it's unclear whether the child lived or died. Another century later, in 1759, an English woman passed away just after going into labor. Her midwife stayed with her until she was sure the woman was dead and the child couldn't be saved. That same day, the woman was placed in a coffin with a shroud draped across her. The next morning, a nurse went to check on the body in anticipation of mourners arriving to pay respects. But when the nurse entered the room, she froze. A strange shape bobbed up and down underneath the burial cloth, 
Screaming, the nurse ran from the room to tell the rest of the household about the ghost upstairs. She led a group of volunteers back to the scene. Someone lifted the still-moving sheet to reveal a living child squirming in the coffin's sawdust. The group sprang into action, wrapping the baby in a blanket and searching for food. Tragically, the child died shortly after its discovery. None of these accounts included the sort of information that modern doctors would look for to confirm their authenticity. They didn't specify dates, locations, or include physicians' reports. So as time passed, many still wondered if coffin births were an invention of the human imagination. Until the 18th century, doctors often included incorrect or exaggerated claims in medical publications. For example, a 1740 book called Primitive Physic suggested treatments that wouldn't make medical sense to modern readers. The book promised the best cure for asthma was living, quote, a fortnight on boiled carrots only. To cure stomach pains, they suggested, quote, hold a live puppy constantly on the belly. It also claimed the best cure for toothaches was electrical shocks. These journals, though preposterous and laughable in hindsight, heavily influenced medical theories and ideas from the 17th to the 18th century. And this was especially true for childbirth. For example, many people blamed the mother's imaginations for their baby's birth defects. Supposedly, if a woman saw or felt something that made a strong impression while she was pregnant, the object could be imprinted upon her fetus. So, say a child was born with webbed toes. That might be blamed on the mother thinking about frogs too much during her pregnancy. And people took advantage of these outlandish claims. Charlatans and con artists charged money for fake treatments. In 1726, one woman famously tricked the best doctors in Europe and King George into believing she could give birth to rabbits. Which is likely why coffin deliveries seem like they could be just another tall tale, even as accounts continued to circulate. From Spain to Belgium to England, over 25 cases cropped up between 1550 and 1870. One famous case helped experts realize that there could be kernels of truth within the stories. After five days of pained labor, Emma Toplace died of childbirth complications in April 1650. She never delivered her child and was still pregnant when her husband Thomas placed her in a coffin. Emma's death was both a tragedy and controversial. Everyone in the town knew her husband was abusive. Some thought he might have killed Emma and the unborn child. These concerns took an alarming turn during the funeral. While pallbearers carried Emma's coffin, some of the mourners heard a rumbling coming from inside the casket. A quiet panic broke out, especially among Emma's friends. They thought that maybe she could still be alive, but they didn't want to say anything with Emma's husband right there. The mourners dispersed after the burial, but Emma's friend Anne Chadwick asked a soldier at the cemetery to accompany her to the grave. She pressed her ear to the ground to listen for signs of life. To her horror, she heard a long, pained sigh. Anne asked the soldier to listen as well. When he crouched down, 
he swore he could hear what sounded like a muffled, high-pitched wail, a baby's cry. Anne and the soldier went to the town's Justice of the Peace, and a team quickly arrived to dig up the coffin. Much to Anne's disappointment, by the time they exhumed Emma, she was dead. But at Emma's feet lay a fully delivered, deceased baby. Since Emma's story contained more information than most other coffin birth accounts, it was widely circulated as proof the phenomenon existed. However, more disturbing details offered an alternate possibility. When the group exhumed Emma's grave, they noticed that the coffin's door was slightly askew. The casket reportedly felt warm, indicating the presence of body heat. When they pried the casket open, the team found hurdles on Emma's chest and in her hand, which were pieces of flax or hemp cut into small pieces. Earlier, they had been placed in the deceased's mouth. It seemed that Anne's first instinct was correct. Emma was buried alive. She could have been unconscious or ill when they lowered her into the ground. Then she woke up inside the coffin, panicking and trying to get out. In labor, she possibly gave birth six feet under, still alive. It may sound far-fetched, but premature burials were fairly common at the time. Researcher and author Christine Quigley wrote that a case of premature burial was discovered an average of once a week in the early 1900s, and that's not counting the people who were buried alive and never found. Throughout the 1800s, people used safety coffins, which included ropes tied to bells and flags so victims could signal if they woke up. Inventors also installed tubing for emergency airways. But as the medical field advanced, these became less necessary. One could assume that all the accounts of coffin births were actually stories of premature burial. But not all post-mortem deliveries occurred in caskets. One woman was still hanging from the gallows when she delivered her baby. Another reportedly gave birth while under a sheet surrounded by mourners. Plus, new accounts kept circulating, too many to write them off as fiction. But nobody understood how they were possible until one doctor put together the most comprehensive analysis of post-mortem deliveries of all time. Coming up, 44 reports of coffin births lead to three medical explanations. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past. From the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald, to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla, each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos 
those may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. From the 17th to the 19th centuries, the Age of Enlightenment marked a period of new ideas and new ways of learning about the world. Famous mathematician, astronomer, and physicist Galileo Galilei pioneered the scientific method in 1623. This was a process that collected measurable, observable, and verifiable evidence to support or disprove a hypothesis. The scientific method ensured scientists and doctors supported their claims with evidence. Reports of coffin births had already been around for a century, but nobody had proven their authenticity until the beginning of the 19th century. The London Medical Repository was one of England's most distinguished journals and reviews. In an 1817 edition, they published a story about a woman named Hannah whose last name was redacted. Eight months into her pregnancy, Hannah felt leg cramps and stomach pains. After losing consciousness on a Sunday morning, a local surgeon arrived to try to revive her. Unfortunately, it didn't work, and Hannah died later that evening. The next day, her heartbroken husband invited their friends and family to pay their respects. As they mourned their friend and her unborn baby, no one noticed anything unusual. Until later that night. Hannah's friend walked past the bed when a sudden movement startled her. Hannah's torso started to move. Terrified, the friend fainted on the spot. When she came to, the woman stumbled out of the room and told the household what she'd seen. But they assumed she imagined everything, a possible side effect of grief. It wasn't until the next morning, when attendants removed Hannah's clothes, that they were proven wrong. A baby's corpse lay next to Hannah. Both bodies were black and had begun to decay. As tragic as this case was, its appearance in an esteemed medical journal helped legitimize coffin births. The account included names, addresses, and a confirmation from the surgeon. As time went on, Additional stories appeared with even more information. In August 1861, a German physician named Dr. Richter wrote about a 45-year-old pregnant woman, prone to seizures, who unexpectedly died about a month before her delivery date. Attendants laid the body out to wash and prepare it for burial. Within a day, it started to decay. But eventually, they noticed a watery discharge coming from between the corpse's legs. Two days after the death, a nurse examined the woman's vagina to search for the source of the discharge, but she didn't notice anything unusual. When the attendants went to put her body in a coffin the next day, a gruesome sight stopped them in their tracks. A partially decomposed fetus lay between its mother's legs. Dr. Richter's account offered far more information than previous reports. He noticed that the corpse also delivered the umbilical cord and placenta. In addition, he included an approximate timeline and observations about the rate of decay and discharge. But the most important account of a post-mortem delivery occurred in 1873 Ireland. On March 15th, 
a woman named Eliza experienced extreme pain during labor. She told her midwife to call a doctor and a priest. Two hours later, the men arrived, but they were too late. Eliza had just died. Neither the doctor nor the priest ever saw the body. Eliza's family buried her two days after her death. But it was a hasty funeral, and a professional had never confirmed the death. So a local coroner called for an inquest, and investigators exhumed Eliza's body. The inspector was shocked to find a male infant lying at Eliza's feet. Both the umbilical cord and placenta were attached to the child, but not the mother. The inspector noticed that Eliza's abdomen was distended, meaning it was bloated or swollen. He wrote that he believed that gas had built up inside the body. Dr. J.H. Aveling, M.D., of the Chelsea Hospital for Women, stumbled upon this account later that year. He'd heard of coffin births before, but this was the first case he'd seen with enough information to properly analyze whether it was a legitimate phenomenon. For several months, Aveling gathered all of the information he could find about these strange deliveries. Between letters, notes, and journals, the physician found 44 accounts from the last 300 years. He believed he'd gathered enough anecdotal evidence to learn how a corpse could deliver a baby. In the end, Aveling proposed three possible explanations. First, he believed the uterus could live longer inside a dead person than other organs. Aveling observed that when someone dies, the entire body doesn't shut down immediately. He cited a study that tested muscle fibers in a corpse. After death, the fibers responded to irritants for 45 minutes in the stomach, 75 minutes in the esophagus, and even longer in the heart, meaning each organ died on a different timeline. Nobody had ever checked fibers in a uterus, but Aveling theorized that it could be possible for it to outlive its host and possibly all the other organs in the body. If true, postmortem deliveries could be the result of completely natural contractions. The physician still couldn't explain what prompted labor. He cited another doctor who thought the fetus itself triggered the birth with its moving. This might explain why in some cases people saw the abdomen lurch or shudder before the delivery. However, Aveling wrote that it was extremely unlikely that any organ could survive for more than two hours after the person's death. Many coffin births occurred much later than that, sometimes several days later. This led to Aveling's second possibility, rigor mortis. This is a biochemical change that occurs several hours after someone dies. The deceased person's muscles tighten, making the entire body tighten and become more rigid. If rigor mortis was strong enough to expel a fetus, it could explain the accounts with longer timelines. However, Aveling believed this explanation was the least likely. Rigor mortis mostly affects the limbs, not organs. The stiffening isn't nearly as strong as the contractions required to deliver a baby. Which led to Aveling's third explanation. He was so confident in this theory, he called it doubtless. It was based on the Irish inspector's observations of Eliza's body and her abdomen full of gas. When a person dies, 
Their gut bacteria often feeds off the inside of the body. This produces a gas that causes the belly to swell up until it's full. It's like having a pressure cooker inside a corpse. This gas eventually leaks out, pushing the body's fluids and liquefied organs out any orifice that's available. In some cases, eyeballs can be forced out of their sockets. The pressure decreases as the person decomposes. However, if a corpse is placed in a coffin before it has enough time to decompose, the gas has nowhere to go. It builds and builds until the body explodes. It's horrific to imagine. But in January 2013, a corpse burst in a Melbourne mausoleum, damaging the granite seals as the liquefied body seeped out of cracks. Since gas could generate enough force to destroy crypts and caskets, Aveling assumed pressure had to be powerful enough to expel a fetus. Lots of variables, including temperature, the person's health, and cause of death, can either quicken or slow down this process. Meaning, the gas could build up at any time, be it two hours or two days after the mother dies. Aveling was content with the gas explanation, but he still had one question. How was it possible for a post-mortem baby to survive? The physician reviewed studies about how long a fetus could live after the death of its mother. Often, this came down to how it got nutrients. An unborn child develops inside an amniotic sac. Inside this membrane, the baby floats in amniotic fluid, or liquid made of water, nutrients, hormones, and antibodies. But the baby only gets part of their required nutrients from the sac. The umbilical cord and placenta take the oxygen that the mother breathes and turns it into nutrients the fetus can absorb. When the woman exhales, the placenta also releases carbon dioxide. Once a mother stops breathing, the baby has to rely on the amniotic sac. This membrane often bursts shortly before labor. You might be more familiar with this as the moment a woman's water breaks. If the woman dies after the sac ruptures, the child won't have the placenta nutrients or the amniotic fluids, and it will die. But if the mother dies before her water breaks, the child can rely on the amniotic fluids, but only for a short while. Generally speaking, amniotic fluid can only keep the child alive for less than half an hour, according to two studies conducted in 1871. But Aveling found that there were rare circumstances in which the fetus lived longer. A study on dogs found that if a pup remains in the amniotic sac and that sac is placed in lukewarm water, it could survive for several hours. This research suggested that a fetus could possibly live as long without its mother, but similar tests have never been conducted with humans. Luckily, a celebrity death 60 years prior provided the information the physician needed. On July 1st, 1810, Prince Joseph Schwarzenberg threw a party to celebrate the marriage of Duchess Marie Louise and French general and emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. Around midnight, a candle fell into a garland and set the room on fire. Napoleon, his wife, and most guests at the celebration escaped. However, Princess Pauline Schwarzenberg, who was pregnant at the time, noticed that her daughter was missing. She ran back into the building, 
only to be crushed by a falling structure. It took a while to clear the wreckage and find the princess. But once she was discovered, a doctor performed a cesarean operation to remove the child from the womb. Amazingly, the surgeon pulled a living newborn out of the princess's body, even though she'd been dead for 24 hours. The fire was a well-known event with lots of publicity. It was the most authenticated account of a baby surviving inside a lifeless uterus for longer than 30 minutes. It was exactly what Aveling needed. In 1872, Aveling published his findings, the 44 coffin birth cases, his three explanations, and the supporting studies in a well-known journal, the Obstetrical Society of London. He didn't have an explanation for every single case. He couldn't even prove they'd all really happened. But by providing evidence these births were possible, Aveling legitimized past and future coffin births. And it did more than satisfy his scientific curiosity. It also played a major role in one of the most famous homicides of the 21st century. Coming up, a major murder trial centers on coffin births. And now, back to the story. After 300 years of vague accounts of coffin birth, physician J.H. Aveling finally provided medically accurate explanations. He argued that gas buildup pushed the baby out of the uterus and the child could survive inside the amniotic sac under the right conditions. But Aveling couldn't corroborate the accounts he'd used as a reference. He hadn't examined any mothers or babies himself. Then, in 2010, a team of archaeologists in Imola, Italy, discovered a grave that contained a well-preserved skeleton of a 25- to 35-year-old woman and a group of small, delicate bones set directly between her legs. Initial testing found the woman's skeleton was over 1,300 years old. This was an exciting discovery, but the smaller bones really stole the show. Although the archaeologists couldn't tell what sex the baby was, the bones clearly belonged to a fetus. Experts initially assumed the child had died along with its mother and had been placed into the grave with her. However, the position of the bones made them reevaluate. The baby's head, shoulders, and torso lay outside the mother's body. But the leg bones indicated that part of the child was still inside the woman's birth canal. It appeared she gave birth after her burial and only partially delivered the fetus. Another study of the child's remains confirmed the suspicion. Based on leg measurements, archaeologists realized the baby had died 38 weeks into gestation, or two weeks before its due date. Archaeologists have since found a few more examples of these rare coffin births across the world. For example, in 2015, a 7,700-year-old skeleton in Siberia was discovered with twins at its feet. This showed that Aveling's work wasn't just hypothetical. Postmortem delivery could now be considered an observed historical reality. Unfortunately, there haven't been many doctors since Aveling who studied the phenomenon or built on this work. This was because cases of coffin births practically vanished in the 20th century, most likely thanks to modern embalming techniques, 
which date back to 1775, when surgeon and anatomy expert John Hunter started to prepare Mrs. Martin Van Butchel's body for burial. As John got to work, the deceased husband stopped him to ask for a favor. His wife's will reportedly specified that he could only enjoy her fortune as long as her body remained above ground. So he wanted to somehow preserve her corpse so that he could respect her wishes and get access to her wealth. As a result of this odd request, John and his brother William developed modern embalming methods. This included sucking the body's liquid and gases out with a tube to prevent pressure from building and replacing the corpse's fluids with a mixture of formaldehyde and water to prevent decay. Once Mrs. Martin Van Butchel was embalmed, dressed, and adorned, she was displayed in their sitting room in a glass-lidded case. Her husband even hosted visiting hours while, of course, enjoying the deceased's fortune. At first, the public was disturbed. At the time, funeral practices were a bit more organic. Mourners often gathered around bodies in a natural state of decay to grieve. However, there were benefits to embalming. It allowed the bereaved more time to visit the deceased. Public perception really changed after the Civil War, when the amount of estimated casualties ranged from 752,000 to 851,000 people. At the time, that was approximately 2% of the American population. With so many dead, the U.S. government gave contracts to undertakers who could preserve the bodies and help ship them home. Embalming became so popular, even Abraham Lincoln opted to be preserved. Within two decades of the Civil War, it became relatively standard for burials in the U.S. The process made it impossible for gas to build inside the body, which is what Aveling believed had caused the post-mortem deliveries. But coffin births didn't disappear completely. And in 2002, they became the center of an internationally famous murder. Lacey Peterson went missing from her California home on Christmas Eve. The 27-year-old was eight months pregnant. The primary suspect became her husband, Scott. Scott refused to take a polygraph and was photographed laughing during vigils for Lacey. He had been having an affair with a woman, but after the news broke about Lacey's death, she worked with the police to find evidence that Scott had killed his wife and unborn child. Four months after her disappearance, Lacey's body washed up on a beach near the San Francisco Bay. The corpse was badly decayed, and it was missing its head and lower limbs. One mile away, a couple walking their dog found a partially decomposed fetus. After these discoveries, police arrested Scott for the murders of Lacey and their unborn son, who they called Connor. During the trial, the question of whether or not Lacey gave birth before or after her death became important to determine if someone besides Scott could have killed her. The defense attorneys claimed that someone else had abducted Lacey, cut the baby out of her stomach, and dumped it into the bay. Because the public already suspected Scott, the kidnappers theoretically could have done this to frame him. However, forensic pathologist Brian Peterson, no relation, suggested another possibility, a coffin birth. 
Dr. Peterson pointed out that Connor was less decayed than Lacey. The tiny fetus also hadn't been eaten by fish or other sea creatures. Perhaps this was because it was still in the uterus for a couple days until the gas in her abdomen pushed it out. Dr. Peterson also found a nutrient called meconium within Connor's body. Meconium only develops in the uterus. It's the first stool babies pass after birth. If the nutrient was still in Connor's bowels, then he didn't live long. However, the forensics expert admitted he couldn't say for sure when Lacey gave birth. Half of her body was missing, which limited the information they could glean from an autopsy. Plus, coffin births were rare, especially in the field of criminology. It was a difficult case to prove. Post-mortem reports found that Lacey's cervix didn't show signs of birth, suggesting the fetus may have been cut out of the stomach with a knife. There was also evidence of twine around the baby's neck. Given these inconsistencies, eventually the post-mortem birth argument was dismissed. Regardless, the jury still found Scott guilty on all counts and sentenced him to death. If anyone in America hadn't heard of coffin births before 2003, they had now. And shortly afterward, a story about a woman in Germany brought post-mortem deliveries back into the spotlight. In 2005, a 34-year-old heroin addict was discovered dead in her Hamburg apartment. The woman, who was eight months pregnant, had overdosed. Between her legs, the head of a fetus protruded from the mother's vagina. Toxicology analysis found that both the mother and child had acute heroin intoxication, and the autopsy concluded that the child had probably died in the uterus. Then, the deceased mother had partially delivered it. Some wondered if heroin had triggered the post-mortem birth. As Aveling noted so long ago, there were a number of variables that affected the speed and strength of the gas buildup. One of the biggest factors was heat. In 2008, a car caught fire after two rear-end collisions. Passers-by rescued the driver, but the 23-year-old pregnant woman in the passenger seat was trapped. When emergency responders finally extinguished the flames, the woman's body was charred. At her feet was a fetus. Strangely, the child's body was almost completely unburnt. It must have been delivered toward the end of the fire. The intense heat had not only shortened the gas building process, but also shrank the woman's uterine walls. The fetus, under pressure and squeezed by a tightening womb, had nowhere to go but out. The placenta and umbilical cord were both intact, suggesting that under the right circumstances, the fetus could have lived a short while after the mother's death. But because it was premature and was born into flames, reports concluded it never lived outside of its mother. Even with shocking stories like these, post-mortem deliveries are so rare that people still refuse to believe it's real. They argue there must be alternative explanations. Perhaps more research would overturn Dr. Aveling's findings. In the meantime, these cases, tragic as they are, offer a comforting sense of hope. The human body is so incredible that it will defy all odds, including death, to bring life into this world. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Billy Pace with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Kit Fitzgerald with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Vanessa from ParCast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.